You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast. This week's episode features a portion of the interview with Dr. Rebecca McCurry from the Sound Girls Living History Project. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Sound Girls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. The oral history interviews are typically unedited and will be archived in their original form. This episode will feature about 30 minutes from the interview. It looks like it's about two hours long, so if you'd like to watch the rest of it, you can find it on our YouTube page or on soundgirls.org, and I will put the links to both of those in the description for this episode. Welcome to the Sound Girls Living History Project. I'm Christina Milanusic. I'm Alberta's chapter head for Sound Girls. Today I'm joined with Dr. Rebecca McCurie. We met recently at the Spring Convention for the Audio Engineering Society, oddly enough, at an after party hosted by Sound Girls. Rebecca's uh, career has been a mix of music and technology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Do you mind introducing yourself? Uh, oh, thank to- you so much, Christine. It's <clears throat> excuse me. It's great to be here and. <clears throat> Sorry about that. <laughs> great to great to talk to you um, and the Sound Girls um, about my work and my career, the interesting path that I had. Um, so I can introduce myself, Rebecca Mercury, PhD, founding president of Notable Software Incorporated, and I primarily work these days as a digital forensics investigator and expert witness. Wow. Um, so I'm just fascinated. Where where did you grow up, and was there was there a person that got you involved in in computer technology and and music? Uh, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear the early history. Yeah, it's sort of back to the roots part. Yeah. So I was born in Philadelphia, PA. So I'm a Philadelphian, um, born and bred, and we spent um, <clears throat> my first four years. I was the first child of my parents. And we spent the first four years in an area called East Oak Lane. It's a historic section, many beautiful homes. And um, my family was renting an apartment in one of those homes there, which still exists. And um, that it's called an area called North Philadelphia or North Philly. And uh, <clears throat> when I was, um, I guess I was about four and a half years old, um, my family moved to Glenside. Um, to Abington Township, um, just outside of the boundaries of the city of Philadelphia. And, um, and that's where, that's where I lived, um, you know, my entire growing up years um, until I moved out, um, you know, in my early twenties. So there was, there were, um, you know, influencers in my life early on, and I must always give credit to my mom and dad. We have the perfect um, left brain, right brain family with my mom being the liberal arts and she was an English professor at Drexel University for many years. Um, my dad, a um, science teacher in the Philadelphia school district for 41 and a half years until his retirement. And he taught all sorts of things, chemistry mostly, um, but also the physical sciences. And um, <clears throat> for me, <coughs> actually when I was, when I was young, and was first, um, you know, starting to pick up things and stuff. It was noticed early on when I started writing that I was ambidextrous. And, um, you know, back in the day, that was really frowned upon. I mean, it could have been worse, 
because my dad, he was probably really left-handed. And, you know, they used to like swat your hand if you used it. And then, yeah, it was, you know, left-handed, sinister, you know, especially in an Italian, partly Italian family. You're not supposed to use your left hand as your primary hand. So um, that likely gave him asthma. But my parents were not concerned about me being ambidextrous. But my first grade teacher was who said you have to pick a hand for writing lessons. And so just to be contrarian, since everybody else picked right, I picked left. But I think I am somewhat more left-handed. Me and my sister is entirely left-handed. My, my brother and I are really ambidextrous. <clears throat> Sorry about this. Um, but but the fact that I am ambidextrous, um, there is definitely a left brain, right brain component. When, you, mm -hmm. when I was studying for my PhD qualifying exams, I noticed, but other people didn't notice, that when I was doing math problems, I was working them with my right hand. And oftentimes my students, when I would be lecturing at the board, I, I, di I didn't even notice this until students started pointing it out. I would write with my left hand and then I took the chalk over here into my right hand. And I would, if it was math, only if it was math formulas. And so mm -hmm. there is there is definitely cognitive differences in people who are ambidextrous. Supposedly the central portion of the brain, you know, sort of keeps things on one side or the other, but there's more conversation between the two hemispheres when you're ambidextrous. And I think that that, you know, I don't know for a fact, I've never had a brain scan, but from studies that I've read, I know that that actually does cause people um, to be more multifaceted in both the arts and the sciences and, you know, in math and engineering, as well as music performance and things like that. So, so I think that was mm -hmm. really the you know, the perfect stimulation. I'm glad that nobody really <laughs> made it seem illegal for me to write with my left hand. In fact, I, for, there was a time when I was trying to get my dad to just hold a pencil in his left hand and he, he was very fearful and wouldn't do it. So it was an early, mm -hmm. very early um, training. So don't do that to your kids. <laughs> so anyway, that was, those were some early things. Then I also had a great professor, my undergraduate education was primarily at Penn State University. And Professor Tom Worms noticed all of these talents um, and also noticed that my math skills weren't that good. I was having problems in calculus. So, but he really encouraged me. And there was also a professor, I took a couple of classes at Temple University um, because I was still in this Philadelphia area. I was studying at the Abington campus, never really except for one um, thing went up to the main campus. So um, so I still stayed in the Philadelphia area for my whole education. There's a professor who unfortunately I can't remember his name at Temple University. He had many patents and it was amazed to me that there was a person who could just write these patents and get patents on, on things. It was very inspiring. And we had, this is, this is, we're really talking the seventies. So mm -hmm. what they had there, um, well, at, at Penn State Abington, we were connected to an IBM <laughs> mainframe, an IBM 370 mainframe at the main campus. And um, oh. we had to, we had to start up our terminal at the Abington campus by loading literally a deck of cards that would boot up that would indicate to the main campus that we were up and running down there. And then after that, you actually, in my first, in my first uh, programming, you actually punched cards and you would put your programming deck into the hopper and it would send the program up to main campus. Later, just in a few years later, they, 
you know, started to have the terminals and you could actually type things in. But that was really primitive. Over at Tobu oh. University, though, they have this mini computer. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, what it did is trivial. I mean, your phone does a gazillion things more than, than this thing did. But it, mm -hmm. was, it was a mini computer it's called the PDP-7. And it ran with paper tape, actually. So you didn't punch it, but you could type into a keyboard and it made this paper tape that um, it would run that through. Later, again, that one got adapted to being able to record directly to magnetic tape. Um, and you could program in a variety of languages there. I early on learned assembly language, Fortran, um, wow. you know, so I never learned COBOL and <laughs> I'm glad that I never learned it. Although it's a major business language, I never learned that. Um, but we worked on that. And also at, at Temple, um, that same professor allowed me that you had to do a hardware design project and I uh, really wanted to do a synthesizer. So I had found oh, a cool. keyboard in the trash and got these parts and was putting this thing together with some Radio Shack microprocessor that was available at the time in the mid to late 70s. And um, it was amazing. And I, those were really amazing experiences that really influenced me. And you were studying uh, Bachelor of Music for this undergrad, correct? This is no, no. I started no. out as a Bachelor of Music at Penn State, but immediately within like one or two semesters, I really didn't want to major in music there because they didn't really have a good music program at that campus. But the main campus mm -hmm. they did. But I really wanted, I mean, the computers were just so fascinating. I just wanted to do the computers. So in fact, <laughs> I probably yeah. didn't even admit to this, but in fact, being small and the trash cans being very large, we had all our printouts, we'd go into the trash cans. They would hide me in the trash can at the end of the day. And the doors would be locked and then... Um, you know, I would be in the trash can, they'd check, you know, the, the facilities people would check and make sure the room was locked. And then I would emerge from the trash can, open the doors to the building and let my friends in. And we would just basically keep the computer running and program for hours more. We never got caught. There were never any, you know, webcams like there are now, but you know, we weren't yeah. doing anything illegal. We just kept programming well into the night, even you know, in those days. And we just loved it. It was just so fantastic. So I was there basically as a computer science major. And that's what my computer first computer science degree was from Penn State. But again, mm -hmm. that music lore was still in me. And so I, I guess it was in my second year at Penn State. <clears throat> I applied. I had always heard of the school, the Philadelphia Musical Academy. A great number of great musicians had come out of there. And I wanted to go there. Plus they had a Moog synthesizer, a big one. And, you know, with the cables and everything, which I never got to program because I could never fit the time into my schedule, but I got to hang out and there were some of my friends, but, mm -hmm. um, but it was, it, I really wanted to go there. So I actually applied um, there, did my music audition on classical guitar and <clears throat> also was thinking of a music ed degree, but wound mm -hmm. up not, finishing up the music ed degree. I was, I was a few credits short and didn't do the teaching and practicum internship. But I, um, so I was essentially at Penn State and the university, it's now the Philadelphia Musical Academy became Philadelphia College of Performing Arts and now it's part of the University of the Arts. So I was there at those two schools simultaneously and Penn State was term, so it was 10 week terms and you would take three or four classes a term, usually three, 
but you would take three, three, and three. So you were doing nine. And then down at the University of the Arts, I was doing four and four. So nine and eight, I was doing a double oh. load because really when you're doing those two completely diverse degrees, there was only a year of coursework, you know, your basic English, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that was the only thing that overlapped. So, so I was very used to, you know, <laughs> not getting much sleep, working nonstop. And, and that's just sort of my constitution. But I really enjoyed, <clears throat> excuse me, having that opportunity to exercise. Again, both parts of my brain simultaneously. And I find mm -hmm. that if I don't do that, if I just stray into one side or the other, then I'm usually wind up not very happy. So I need to get that back in, whether it either just be by going to concerts and music performances. I must subscribe, have been prior to COVID subscriber to many, um, many arts events and, and museums and things like that. So, so I always try to get both sides in. And I think that it's really good for anybody who is, I think of audio engineering as it's the perfect compliment because yeah. it's the audio. Some of you are performers also, but some of you are just staying behind, you know, this, the, you know, the keyboard, the consoles, the microphones are staying in the, the backside of it. So like, I like to refer to it as the front side of the microphone and the back side of the microphone. And, mm -hmm. and I think the more you know about what goes on at the front side of the microphone, it really does make you better able to understand what is going on with the struggles of the performer and how you can better help them and how you can mm -hmm. actually better enhance their sound and what they're doing. So yeah, I think it's really important. It's so, it's so interesting from like this cognitive neuroscience standpoint about which parts of the brain are actually processing things at once. Like, you know, because it's an ipsilateral uh, thing with, with writing, right? You're right, you're right-handed, but that, that's actually your left brain. And so there's, there's these interesting things and they kind of, it's like the neuroscience of the human and how these action potentials are going off in our brain. There's some relationship there, I think, between how a computer works and like how we've designed computers to works and what, what areas, like what microprocessing goes on. Well, it's, true, so it's, it's even, really fascinating. It is. And it's even true in the design of musical instruments. Most people, the majority of people are right-handed. So playing the guitar the regular way, you're playing it mm -hmm. right-handed, but it's like, wait, but all the work is going on in the left hand. So why is that? Same with the violin. But there is a reason for that. And the reason is because when you're, it's your dominant hand. So you use, so think of it, you're holding like this. So look at monkeys. When they're climbing, we were, you know, maybe once monkeys. When you're climbing, you're using your dominant hand and you're, you're you know, there's an underhand like this and there's mm -hmm. the overhand. This is, this is your stronger hand. So the guitar, you're strumming really with your stronger hand. Although most of the work, the notes and stuff is really coming out of here, but the way it physically lays out is really for the right-handed person. Same with the violin. But um, so it is amazing that that is the way those instruments developed over the centuries. And, and you know, so I never, I never felt uncomfortable and I never felt that I needed to be left-handed. I actually taught left-handed guitar students and it was bizarre because you're like, like I'm used to having the other guitarist being parallel to me but then you're looking like in a mirror at them, you know? So it was really, it was really interesting. I never could understand until I learned about that climbing thing, that whole, you know, the, the weak hand and the strong hand. 
until I learned about that, I really never understood why, why I couldn't understand you're left-handed, but so am I just hold it this way. No, I can't. And, and, and it really, there really is a cognitive thing with, with strong, I would say strong left-handers that really, you know, need to be able to play it this way. So <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like one of the strong hand is kind of taking care of that time component, the rhythm, and then this, the, the, the delicate, precise hand where you're playing all the notes is really about the position and the space. It's, right. it's very interesting. Right. And it's not just the rhythm, but it's also the volume too. You're, you're emphasized, especially the, the amplitude, amplitude, yeah. the amplitude and, you know, what you're doing, but it, it is sort of the neglected arm. <laughs> But it is it, it is interesting. With piano, of course, this was a problem with piano. We all, yeah. my family all learned piano from our mom starting at the age of four. And my mom would say, you're just banging you with your left hand because in the piano, you really need to be more subtle with the left hand and, you know, try to emphasize more with the right hand. So, so yeah, it just, the left hand in piano, you do not want that to be the dominant hand. I wonder yeah. if there are any left-handed concert pianist that would be interesting to find out it would be very interesting and then even now again technology as like you, you know now we have polyphonic aftertouch and all these like things that make right. it more all like a hammer keyboards you know if you're playing the organ you know so it's yeah it's just it's all very different now yeah totally you can accommodate to whatever but on a regular acoustic piano there's no yeah. problem <laughs> So I just want to quickly ask you what your first audio engineering job was. Okay, so this was back when I was a undergraduate student at Penn State. Um, tuition was a uh, a hefty sum of money, two hundred dollars per trimester. <laughs> I had to come up with six hundred dollars, and that was a lot of money <laughs> back yeah. in the seventies. You know, you know, back in that time. Frame. So it, that you had to scrape that together. So I was teaching guitar lessons in the basement of my parents' house, and at um, at Penn State, they had you know jobs posted, and one of them was working in AV. And what you did in AV was because again this was the 70s. So if a teacher wanted to show a video, you had to move a film projector <laughs> into their room, set up the reel, put it all up. And and you know set off all the equipment. Same thing with slide projectors. You were you were setting up all this equipment, and then because you're if you're in AV, you also got to help out with the student things where they had you know you know the student clubs and you know the videos and movies where you get you know professional movies and you know that you know you would rent and stuff like that. So I was always in the AV booth. So I was doing the AV for that. And I was also doing the AV and they, they paid you a pittance. I mean, like minimum wage was what a buck 25. I don't know what it was, but the cool thing was is that if you were fast at it, you could sign up for multiple classes at the same time. They'd be on the same hallway or on the same floor. And so I would run, run to the room, pick up the equipment, move it into the classroom, set up the thing, go to the next room, you know, and I would do like three of them. So I got a whopping, you know, $5, but you know, yeah. $200 tuition. And then if you did that multiple times a day and multiple days a week, you were really mm. earning, you know, the money that you actually needed. And the, yes, they took taxes out of that too. But, but that was actually the thing there. So, but the thing I have to also tell you is that one of my classmates at Penn State Abington was a guy by the name of Eddie Saletti. 
and audio engineers will be familiar with his name because he often gives talks at the different AES shows. He, um, he was working in New York for a long while and basically created his own company. Um, I think he's out uh, further you know, in, in the United States, but he basically does a lot of refurbishments of equipment, especially like tape uh, machines, and also you know, setting things up so that these older recordings can be archived. He's given a number of really great talks about that. And it, I mean, he's got such a lyrical name, Eddie Soleil, <laughs> but it's really, it's always been great. Every time I would run into Eddie um, at the AES show in New York, you know, we just always give each other a big hello. So yes, you have to, <laughs> you're writing his name down. You have, you have to meet him. So he's really cool. And, and now we were both at Penn State together and doing AV. So it was really cool. So we became you know, lifelong colleagues. Really <laughs> this transition, like I'm, I'm wondering, like two, two more things. Kind of like, what was your experience? Not to get too much into the gender thing, but what was your experience at that time in the '70s, doing, you know, more like computer science based, uh, based studies? Like, how, how was that for you? Like, was it? Did you I, ever I notice anything? Was, or? No, there was nothing very weird. There was nothing really very weird about it. Um, I, there were, again, still very few women in the field. Originally in Philadelphia, the women were the programmers of the ENIAC computer. Um, oh. Kay Mockley and her husband, later to be husband, many of them married the engineers. So her husband, John Mockley, um, they, they, she was hired, they were hired as computers. And so they were the people who were doing the calculations. They eventually got redeployed from doing, um, you know, the, the, the things they were doing was some uh, differential equations and they were working all this out. They all had math degrees. And, um, mm -hmm. and then the engineers were working on building the ENIAC computer. Um, but the women were redeployed from doing this math over to um, doing the, the programming of the ENIAC computer. They never received the recognition that they should. They, mm -hmm. Many of them, many, the men won many awards. The women were essentially ignored until a few decades ago when they started reviving information about the women of the ENIAC. But we knew them. I, I had met um, uh, Kay Mockley and uh, John and Kay have a son, Bill Mockley, who actually became... Um, he started a company called Ensonic, and they actually created the first um, audio chip, music sound chip for the Apple II series. It was when they got the Apple II, when I was programming that, um, you had to just you know write some assembly language routines and it was like square waves, you know, it was really bad <laughs> sounding. So, so, but you could do a little bit of faking, you know, if you wrote some, you know, niftier assembly language programs, which I did do. So you could get multiphonics out of it, but basically you were sort of doing a cheat in there. But um, he was, his company, Ansonic, was hired by Apple Computer to design the, um, the, the sound, first sound chip for the Apple II series of computers. And it was quite nice. Um, and, and I actually interviewed over at Apple. They offered me a job. That would have been very life changing. <laughs> it would have been very different. Um, but at the time, I mean, I really thought hard about it. But at the time, it just didn't seem like the right move for me. And probably mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been because that was when um, 
it was it was a great opportunity, but at the time that was when Steve Jobs was getting on the outs and eventually had to leave. And he only took men with him to, over to next, so maybe one or two women. But but it was yeah, I would have been stuck in the Apple II division because that's where I was going to be working, and I might not have worked on the Mac. And who knows? But you can't you can't know about the future. But anyway, it was really excellent um, opportunities for me. Um, to be able to work on the Apple II computers because I, that was my first um, personal computer that I owned. I got an Apple II Plus and, um, and I would just always take that thing apart. I like changed the chips out so that it had upper and lower case because it didn't have upper and lower case back in the day. Had very few, um, you know, very little memory storage very little RAM. So, you know, we had expansion cards. So I was always designing cards and stuff for it. Um, it was, you know, this was really great. I mean, I got to like experiment with that, write software for it. So it was sort of, you know, it was sort of like the best of times, but in a way also sort of the worst of times. We'll get to some of the worst of times when we get to the RCA experiences. But in the 70s, you know, I guess it was now we're in the early 80s when I got the Apple. Um, but I think it was great. I didn't really see it as, oh yeah, there's no other women in these classes. I just, right. you know, we just made friends and, you know, it was all cool, you know? So, so, so I didn't really, you know, I think it was because of the professors. The professors I had were really encouraging to me um, and in, in a way that helped me to just feel like part of the guys. So mm -hmm. that, that was, I didn't really think of it as any, anything peculiar. Now, in terms of like just the computer history, and we're going to get into why this history is so, so important to like digital audio today in a minute. But just for my own sake, I know that like, I think it was in the 60s. Was was that when you had the Commodore 64 and the Sinclair? And like, like what was the history of that that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Like, I really was not. I was not into this. Was all all you have to do is watch Young Sheldon because he had the radio. <laughs> he has the radio. If you watch the TV show Young Sheldon, he, okay. He, him. It's really more the eighties. You know, he's very addicted to Radio Shack, and you know, it, it, he even makes the comment in one of the shows. You can tell I watch it all the time. He makes a comment in one of the shows. Oh, this this company will be in existence forever. Of course, you have to laugh because it's sad because Radio Shack doesn't know do any longer exists. But that's yeah. where you would go for parts and things like that. And they did sell a lot of computers there. Of course, their own line of computers and things. So this was really more late eight, late seventies and then into the eighties. So that's yeah, sixties. There there was a there was. Yeah, there, there were even like the little Texas Instrument one stuff were really these portable ones. Um, RCA did have did have um, a primitive computer um, that they that they tr sold for a while, but these were like sort of late seventies. Um, but it was really in the eighties when you could really start to. It was like late seventies, early eighties when you could start to buy stuff that you could take home. And then get into the personal computer type of stuff. And then there was interesting, largely for games and stuff. They wanted to have better audio because there was a lot of games like Pong. That was a that was a big game, you know, this this pixel going back and forth on the screen. And but the sounds were cool, you know. So so there was a lot with regard to to that type of thing. And um, so you know, so so sound became more important. 
but it's still, sound has still never achieved the type of importance, um, you know, in the computer, like in computer gaming and stuff like that, that, that it really should have. There's a lot more that we could do with polyphonics. Finally now, and we're talking, you know, it's 2021. Now we're talking about having meetings three-dimensional sound and holophonics and spatialization, all sorts of stuff like that. We were working on all, all of those formulas that they're all talking about now, all of that. We were working on all that. All of that stuff was being done in the 80s and the 90s, um, but, but it just wasn't picked up on. It was just this, you know, even the idea of stereo, you know, mm-hmm. I, one of the things I worked on when I was at RCA, I mean, I didn't really work on it. I was a part of it, they were rolling out stereo television. Okay, this is 19, like the mid 1980s, you know, like 84, 85. TVs were mono that entire time. Yeah. At records and stereo and all sorts of stuff. But TV was not stereo. And even now, when you even when you buy a fantastic TV, you still have to buy a soundboard bar or some big speakers because the TV has the crappy little speaker yeah. <laughs> buy a thousand dollar amazing flat screen TV and these crappy two little speakers are yeah. in the front. So it's still like that. I mean this again it's 2021, but back in the 80s, you know, RCA was like, you know, and some of the other companies, the other manufacturers were saying, well, what if we had stereo TV? So, but the big question was, is it going to work? And how are we going to broadcast this? Remember, everything was going through the airwaves. Nobody had cable. Mm-hmm. There really was, you know, you, there were cables to, you know, between the corp- companies that were feeding the channels to Philadelphia and stuff. But, you know, nobody had a cable. Everybody used their rabbit ears antennas or maybe like antenna on the roof. But you really, you know, how are they going to do that? And so, do it, creating a good stereo sound that was not going to be blurry or actually cancel itself out was a big project, especially up at NBC headquarters in New York. RCA owned NBC. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so at 30 Rock, they were doing all these A-B testing things. And the people at the labs knew, you know, I was like totally into the audio stuff. And, um, you know, I, hey, we'll send Rebecca up there for a little bit and see, you know, what she thinks about the sound. And and it was like blind testing, you know, okay, you know, listen to this one, okay, listen to this one. We just did that for days and days and days. And, you know, they just wanted to know what you thought. There's there's also, I think they call it inner mod, where, you know, again, there's bouncing off of buildings of the radio yeah. and stuff. So this inner mod um, was seeming to be problematic with some of the algorithms that they were using for decoding the sound um, on the other side. So, so this this was a really big deal. And NBC, what they believe, if I'm reading my stations correctly, um, I, I'm hoping I'm gonna, getting this right. It was it was supposed to be the the Tonight Show or either the Tonight Show trumped them. I forget which way it was. But NBC was supposed to have the first stereo broadcast, but it might have been the Tonight Show. What station was it? Tonight Show. I never can remember it. But anyway, it was the station of the Tonight Show. Basically, another station broadcast in stereo before we did. We're like, no, no, this is not right. This was supposed to be NBC, you know, big glory with RCA. But um, but anyway, it was just a little minor feud among the TV stations. 
But, you know, but I remember that because that was, again, it was an exciting time. We were in on the ground floor of changing really the whole world of sound as far as television was concerned. But look how long it's taken. It's just still so slow and, you know, we're still not quite there yet. So, so yeah, these were fascinating experiences that I had the opportunity to get on, which in looking back, they seem amazing. But at the time, I was like, okay, just go up to New York. And that boy, they really fed you very well up there. Every, you know, you take off at around noon and go to some really wonderful New York restaurant and you wouldn't come back till two, but then you'd work late into the evening. So <laughs> it was great. It was really great. And you were up on top of 30 Rock and it was just fantastic. That was a great experience. Thank you so much for listening to the Sound Girls podcast and the Sound Girls Living History Project. More episodes of the Sound Girls Living History Project will be featured right here on the podcast in coming weeks. You can find the rest of this episode with Dr. Mercury on the Sound Girls YouTube page and on soundgirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.